News of the Times, Frightful Fridays, Murders in Cheshire. Welcome to News of the Times. In today's episode, we look at two cases from Cheshire, also following along the February theme of love going terribly wrong. In our first case, it is a historically rather famous case of Martin Doyle of 1861, one of the few to be executed for attempted murder. His repeatedly vicious assaults on his partner Jane only stopped because he thought he had killed her. The jury were noted for being horrified by the appearance of his partner and victim Jane in court testifying against him, as her face had been brutally mangled by continued assaults with heavy rocks and sharp stones. Our second case of 1881, although historically not famous, caused something of a sensation in the community at the time due to the absolute savagery of the crime. The witness, their adopted daughter of eight or nine years, was the prime witness who gave evidence against her father. Two brutal crimes of love souring in Cheshire is today's episode of Frightful Fridays. We hope you enjoy the show. Case 1. Our first story is the famous Martin Doyle case of 1861. Martin Doyle's case stands as a rare instance in the annals of British legal history marked by a sentencing of death for attempted murder, a sentence deemed fitting by a jury gripped by the horror of his crime. The trial, chronicled in vivid detail by the press, unfolded with the victim herself taking the stand, despite her ailing condition, her appearance described as ghastly, with a countenance marred by deep scars, sent shivers through the courtroom, evoking a collective sense of revulsion. Background Martin Doyle, 26, and unemployed, and his partner Jane Brognine, described as older than him, roam from place to place looking for work. The papers vary as to whether her husband left her with their two children or if she had left her husband and two children. Regardless, she had connected with Martin Doyle and they lived as man and wife. The Crime The couple have traversed several towns looking for work, but have been unsuccessful. They are on their way to the next town when the weather turns to rain. Finding some shelter under a tree, Jane complains of a headache and falls asleep on Martin's knee, only to be awakened by a pressure on her. She asks what's going on, and Martin leaves for a moment to check the weather and then returns with a large stone in his hand. From the Cheshire Observer, the 8th of June, 1861. Brutal attempt to murder near Sandbach. We have to report one of the most brutal attempts to murder which is 
has been a lot to record for some time past, especially as occurring in this county. It seems that on Thursday last, information was given to the county constabulary that a murder had been committed at New Road Church Lawton near Sandback. An officer proceeded to the place where it was said the murder had been committed and he found a large quantity of blood there and several sharp-edged stones covered with blood. The person who was supposed to be murdered was a woman and had been removed to a public house a short distance from Church Lawton. Thither the officer went and found that although the woman was not dead, she was in a very precarious state, her body being literally covered with cuts and bruises. A man named Martin Doyle was taken into custody and was charged with committing the offence by P.C. Dale of the county force. Dale took his prisoner before G.W. Latham Esquire, magistrate, who, on learning the dangerous state in which the woman was, remanded Doyle and proceeded to where the woman lay. This was at a place called Talk of the Hill, and is the, in the county of Staffordshire, just over the Chester border. Mr Latham took down the depositions of the supposed dying woman. She said, My name is Jane Brogin, and I am the wife of John Brogin, and he left me at Omskirk about nine months since. He took my children with him, a boy and a girl, I have not seen him or them since. I became acquainted with the prisoner Martin Doyle about a month after my husband left me at Ormskirk. He stayed with me three or four days there. We then went to Wigan and there lived together for about eleven weeks at the house of a man called Doughty. He there left me to go in search of work. After many travels for several days, we came through the Lindley Tollgate between one and two o'clock. We then came to a hollow place on the side of the road. It was raining fast. We sat down under a tree about five or six yards from the Turnpike Road. We remained about one hour, and then I went to sleep, and he pulled my head onto his knee. I awoke and found his elbow as a great weight upon my head. I should think I was sleeping about three-quarters of an hour. He then got up and said he would go and see if it had done raining. He came back with a great stone in his hand and stood at the back of a tree. He threw it at my head, and it knocked me down and made me feel quite silly. I then shouted and put up my hands and said, don't! What is that? He then came and placed his knees upon my breast and seized me round my throat and forced my tongue out. He then saw he could not finish me with that and he got a sharp stone and said he was determined to have my life as he had come there for it. I had expressed a wish that morning that if he did not get work at Newcastle, to return back. 
He then began to knock me about the head and face with a stone. I asked him to spare my life. He said, no, your life I intend to have. And he kept hammering at me until I was covered with blood. He said, now I will have you done. I then drew my breath and gave a great sigh. He then gave me four or five more knocks and I could neither speak nor see and fainted as he went away from me. As he went away, he said, Now, devil, you are done. I remained there a short time and was getting a little better when I heard the noise of a cart coming up the road and crept towards it as well as I could. But I could not see my way and the man stopped the cart. He said, Oh, woman, who has been committing murder? I said, it is the man who has gone down the road in a white jacket that has done this. The poor woman was soon afterwards found in a state of insensibility and removed to a house in the neighbourhood. When the prisoner was taken into custody, he said, you have no occasion to take hold of me. It is me that has done it, and I am ready to suffer anything for it. The reason I did it was because she said she would turn back if I did not get work in Newcastle. Jane survives with difficulty, and Doyle, under arrest, goes to trial. It was said that her face was so badly cut up it was difficult to understand how she had survived. Doyle led his own defence and badgered Jane mercilessly on the stand, despite several warnings by his own counsel that he was doing himself no favours. Jane, with the doctor by her side, had to be revived several times during the brutal questioning by Doyle. From the Cheshire Observer, the 10th of August, 1861, Attempt to Murder. Brugnine turned the times she was giving her evidence and was accompanied with a seat, she still being too weak to stand. Her face bore evident marks of the outrage committed upon her, and restoratives were given to her several times during her examination. The jury found the prisoner guilty of cutting and wounding with attempting to murder. With the not unexpected verdict of guilty by the jury... The surprise is the sentencing of the judge for execution, although Jane had survived the attack. From the Cheshire Observer, the 31st of August, 1861, the execution of Martin Doyle. On Tuesday morning last, Martin Doyle, who our readers will remember, was at the late Assizes condemned to suffer the extreme penalty of the law, was executed in front of the city jail. A petition and memorial bearing about 400 signatures had been sent up to the Home Office, praying that the sentence might be commuted, but no answer was received till the morning of the execution. At about four o'clock that morning, a letter, of which the following is a copy, was forwarded from the Post Office to the Reverend Canon Carberry, who was at that time at the city jail. Whitehall, 
August 24th, 1861. Sir, I am directed by Sir George Grey to acknowledge the receipt of your letter, forwarding a petition on behalf of Martin Doyle, now under sentence of death, and I am to express to you his regret that after a full consideration of the cases and facts, he can see no sufficient ground to justify him in advising any interference with the due course of the law. I am, sir, your obedient servant, H. Waddington. The trial having been of such recent date, it is not necessary to give a very lengthy account of the crime for which Doyle suffered. He was a travelling tinker, and had some way got acquainted with Jane Rognine. She was considerably older than he was, and was a married woman, but had left her husband. Martin Doyle was also married, but had also left his wife. Doyle and Brognine co-inhabited together, and rambled together from one place to another in pursuit of work. They were on tramp in May last, and on the morning of the 30th of that month, were passing along the high road in Church Lawton, when a shower of rain came on. They entered a wood which skirts the road, and there took shelter under an oak tree. After a while, Doyle went into a hollow near, and there called out to the woman to follow him. As he had found better shelter, she went and found him under an elder tree. Jane Brognine, as soon as she got to him, complained of a headache, and he told her to lie down and go to sleep. This she did, and after having slept about half or three-quarters of an hour, she awoke and found that Doyle had drawn her head on his knees. She sat up, and Doyle said he would go and see if it was fine. He went, but immediately returned, carrying a stone in his hand, with which he at once attacked the woman. He also took up a small, sharp-edged stone, and with it cut into her head and face, till she was insensible, till she seemed, indeed, dead. The woman prayed for life, and begged that he would spare her, but he told her that he meant to have her life, and he would have it. Finding her insensible, he turned from her, but on noticing that she continued to breathe, he turned to her again, and recommenced beating her with the sharp-edged stone. This he did till she seemed dead. He then left her, and the woman, on recovering her senses and not hearing him about, tried to move. She heard a cart passing along the road and cried out to the driver, but fearing that he could not hear her, she crawled out of the hollow to the roadside, where she was seen and picked up. When apprehended, Doyle did not deny having done the deed, but stated that he had been provoked to her by ill-usage of him. The immediate cause assigned was that she had threatened to leave him if he did not succeed in getting work at Newcastle, to which place they were going. Doyle said that when he had done it, he went and washed the blood from his hands, and then, feeling some remorse, 
looked about for a pool in which he might drown himself. Our readers will remember the trial, how the woman, although three months had elapsed since Doyle had attempted to take her life, was so faint that a seat had to be provided for her on the bench, and with the doctor to whose skill she owed it that she was a living woman in immediate attendance upon her. Unfortunately for himself, Doyle persisted in an irrelevant and brutal cross-examination of the weak woman, although warned frequently that he was doing his cause no good. He was found guilty, and sentence of death was passed upon him. As we have said, a petition was got up and forwarded to the Home Office, but its prayer was disregarded. He seemed to lay all his misfortunes upon the woman whom he had attempted to murder. Calcraft, who had been sent for to officiate as the law's last minister, arrived in the city about four on Monday afternoon, and at once proceeded to the jail where he stayed the night. He was up early in the morning and was seen in the jailer's kitchen. His appearance was such as contrasted much with one's ideal of the repulsiveness and general low type of a character appropriate to one holding his office. He is a respectable-looking man, somewhat above the middle height and rather stout. His bearing was staid, and the mode of his treating his victim was throughout humane. Outside the jail, the preparations consisted of a barrier which was fixed in the road in front of the jail, and all Mr. Hill's staff of policemen were sent to keep order. At the time, there would be about 3,000 people present. The crowd behaved in a very orderly manner. He being pinioned, the procession moved on again. He mounted the steps to the drop with as much clarity as he were rushing to some rare sight. And whilst there again wished to address the people, he was dissuaded by the priests and by Calcraft. He did wave his hand to the people, and after he had shaken hands with the priests and with Calcraft, he had previously done so with the sheriff and the other officials, the cap was drawn over his face and the rope adjusted round his neck. All the time he stood perfectly still, with his body quite erect, and there could not be noticed even a tremble throughout his frame. Calcraft descended, the bolt was drawn, and Martin Doyle had ceased to exist. His death must have been instantaneous, as no movement or convulsion of any kind took place. We'll be back after a quick break. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted.
From 1861, we jump to the Macclesfield murder of 1880. It is Christmas Day, Macclesfield, and Hawker William Stanway and his partner Anne Meller have been drinking with friends. The day unfolds into a brutal murder. From the Manchester Courier, the 29th of December, 1880, murder at Macclesfield. A horrible murder has been committed at Macclesfield, which, although perpetrated on Christmas night, Saturday, only came to knowledge of the police on Monday evening. A man named William Stanway, broom maker and hawker, residing in St George's Street, Sutton, one of the townships of which the parliamentary borough is comprised, cohabited with a woman named Anne Meller, with them also living is a daughter of the woman's, about nine years of age. From time to time, the parties who were somewhat addicted to drinking had quarrels, which not unfrequently ended in Meller being ill-used, although she never had recourse to a court of justice for the redressing of her wrongs. Stanway had been hawking in the county for some days and only returned to Macclesfield on Saturday. During the day the two had been drinking together and both, is said, were the worst for liquor early in the afternoon. At about five o'clock they quarrelled and Stanway beat his paramour somewhat severely. Later in the evening they had another disturbance and when Stanway came home at about midnight Mellor and her daughter had retired to rest. The statement of the little girl is to be the effect that when Stanway, whom she called father, came in, he cursed and swore and said what he would do if Mellor would not get out of bed and come downstairs. Afraid of his threats being carried into effect, the unfortunate woman complied with the ruffian's demand. She had no sooner got to the bottom of the stairs than he ran a red-hot poker into the fleshy part of her side. The screams of the unhappy woman attracted the neighbours, and she was carried into her sister-in-law's house. From some explained cause, whether it was that they failed to appreciate the extent of her injuries she had sustained, or from a desire to screen Stanway, the police were not communicated with, nor was medical assistance sent for. The injured woman was allowed to lie in this condition until Monday night, when at Stanway's request a medical man was sent for, but the woman died before he arrived. Stanway had, in the meantime, made in culpatory statements to neighbours, none of whom, however, thought fit to inform the police. He says he was mad drunk, and when on Monday he appeared to realise the enormity of his crime, he prayed by her bedside and ordered a doctor to be sent for. Stanway was at once apprehended. He is well known to the police as a violent character. The atrocity of the crime attracted the attention of the public. Stanway is brought to trial despite his assurances of his deep contrition. 
the adopted daughter is the primary witness against her father. From the Manchester Courier, the 5th of February 1881, the Macclesfield murder case. On Tuesday at Chester Assizes, before Mr Commissioner Brown, William Stanwaite, 31, Hawker of Macclesfield, was indicted for the willful murder on the 27th of December of Anne Meller, a woman who was also a hawker and with whom he cohabited. Great public interest was taken in the case, the court being crowded throughout the hearing. Stanway's bearing in the dock was stolid. He was allowed to be seated and remained quite motionless, his head inclined forward all day. Mr Marshall, in opening the case, said the prisoner was a hawker who had resided for some time past in a court off George Street in Macclesfield, and for some years he had lived with the deceased as his wife. They had with them a little girl named Sarah Ann Blunt, eight or nine years of age, whom they had adopted, and who was the principal witness in the case. Prisoner, who had been away into the potteries, returned on Christmas Eve, and after breakfast he and the woman, Mella, went out drinking together, and in the afternoon they quarrelled, and the prisoner commenced beating the woman in a very savage manner, knocking her down on the floor of a neighbour's. She eventually managed to get away from him and ran into the street, where he followed her and continued to beat her. From the words which passed, starvation, vengeance, it appeared that the quarrel was about food not having been prepared. The brutality of the assault was such that the crowd called prisoner a murdering villain, and the pair were separated. They entered their house together, but five minutes afterwards, prisoner ran after her down the yard, she screaming murder, and he threatening her if she came there again. The little girl would tell them that, previous to that, and while they were in the house, the prisoner had been kicking the woman and striking her with a poker. She was accordingly afraid to return to the house, and went with the little girl to a neighbour's named Williamson, who lived with another woman named Anne Sutton. But being unable to gain admission there, she went across the court to the house of a young man named Burns, and the little girl was sent for quantities of drink. At about nine o'clock, the woman returned to the prisoner's house and went to bed with the little girl. But the prisoner, who remained downstairs, kept calling out to her to come down. She at last went down, but she had no sooner done so than the prisoner, who had the red-hot poker in his hand, ran it into her abdomen, the result of that fearful act being the death of the woman two days later. In support of the opening statement having been given, Mr Dan addressed the jury for the defence and said that the prisoner was indicted for a murder committed with malice and a forethought. Now, where in the world, he would ask, was that of premeditation on the part of the prisoner? 
from first to last after that fateful night of Christmas 1880, had he done anything in the world beside expressioning his sorrow and contrition for what he had done to the woman whom he had lived with as his wife. The prisoner had never attempted to leave Macclesfield or go abroad as he might easily have done. It had been urged that he had not called in a doctor as soon as he might have done, but the woman was the elder and probably had the upper hand of him. And as she did not wish a doctor called in, he, being contrite and not wishing to have any further quarrel with her, did not send for one. The act to be contended was the sequel of a drunken spree, and the prisoner was in such a state that he really did not know what he was doing. The learned counsel quoted from Archibald, showing that he had been laid down upon an indictment for murder. The intoxication of the prisoner might be taken into as a circumstance that the act was not premeditated. He said that the prisoner was so drunk at the time that he did not know what he was doing and was unable to distinguish between right and wrong. And although he might have wished to injure his wife, he did not intend to murder her. He begged that the jury would take this view of the case to which it was open and mercifully acquit the prisoner of having committed the awful crime of murder. His lordship having summed up, the jury returned a verdict of willful murder and the prisoner was sentenced to death. There was much press on Stanway's insistence that he had not known what he was doing and therefore should be given mercy. They were unsympathetic. Much praise was extended of the manner in which the judge handled the sentencing. From the Edinburgh Evening News, the 3rd of February, 1881, the Macclesfield murder sentence of death. The woman lived through her horrible torture for two days. It was not until she was seen to be dying that a surgeon was sent for, and before he arrived, she had expired. The evidence for the prosecution showed that the prisoner's savage nature was inflamed by jealousy as well as by drink. The defence was that he was so maddened by drink that the element of premeditation might be considered as absent from his crime. The jury found the prisoner guilty. Asked what he had to say on why sentence of death should not be passed upon him, prisoner replied, I never done it, sir, not that I know of. Prisoner here went on to his knees in the dock. If I must die this moment, I know nothing at all about it. The judge in passing sentence said, Prisoner at the bar, you have been convicted of willful murder, and I must say that I think for my own part it would have been a misfortune in the interests of society had the jury come to any other conclusion. The evidence appears to me about as clear as any that has ever been given in such a case. 
You began using this poor woman in the most brutal manner, and you might have caused her death by kicking alone before you used the red-hot poker. You were not satisfied with that, but half frenzied by drink and half frenzied by passion, you had the brutality to take up the red-hot poker and thrust it into the body. Prisoner interrupted anxiously. I know nothing about it. The poor woman who seemed to have lived with you and who seems to have had sufficient affection for you to try to shield you from the consequences of your crime. The interests of society impertively require that I should pass upon you the death sentence. Sentence of death was then passed. Prisoner, whose bearing throughout the trial had been downcast and almost motionless, now made a military salute, and he was then led below by the warder. William Stanway was executed on the 21st of February, 1881, by Marwood, for the murder of Anne Meller. The execution was private, with no one but government officials being present. That concludes this episode of Frightful Fridays, Murders in Cheshire. We very much hope you enjoyed the show. If you did enjoy the show, we will be grateful if you could like or subscribe to our little channel. We upload five days a week. Mondays are murderous as we delve into the dark side of Regency and Victorian crime. Wednesdays are wicked, where we pull together stories with a similar theme, such as Doctors of Death. Fridays are frightful, where we look at crimes in a location, such as stories from the stage to murder and scandal in the aristocracy. Saturdays is Serial Killer Saturdays, where we investigate serial killer stories from the past. And Sundays is a bit of fun with a unique mini murder mystery where you, the listener, have a chance to solve a murderous riddle. On the last Sunday of the month, we offer a two-hour compilation of stories based around a theme. Thank you again for watching and listening. This has been News of the Times, and I am Robin Coles.